we're diving head first into glory tonight in the Transfiguration text. And I think that Jeff's um, set list and kind of songs of prep do a really, hold a really important space for us of um, naming the glory of God along with the tension of that. So Jeff and Anne Claire and Charles coming up.
Thanks so much, Jeff and Claire and Charles. Um, and I realized earlier there's new folks in the room, and I did not introduce myself. Um, I'm Molly, pastor of Emmaus Way. So glad to be with you. Um, and we're going to pass the peace of Christ with one another, um, share in some snacks and fellowship and catch up with how folks have been doing in just a moment. Um, and then we'll come back and have our Sunday conversation. And I wanted to say that Ben often takes the conversation dialogue title I give him and changes it and makes it better because I'm not good at coming up with dialogue titles. So don't, a transfiguration witness just sounds really horrible, um, but it's gonna be a great dialogue, so don't get distressed by the title. I was looking at it in the songs of prep like, oh, that is not my gift. Um, so we're gonna come back and talk about a transfiguration witness and other things. But first, pass the peace of Christ with one another. Talk to someone maybe you haven't before. And we'll come back in just a few moments. All right. If you would work your way back toward the middle. Um... And we will start dialoguing. So I don't know about you, um, but it's been a heavy week for me. Yeah, it's just this week has felt heavy. Our United Methodist family voted in such a way where love does not win the day and our LGBTQI beloved kin are still not seen as full persons of worth, value, and rights in that denominational body. After this week, that private university in town just down the road decided to pull out on a light rail project that a lot of community partners have been working on and had a lot of energy and hope and possibility for what that might mean for Durham, especially when it comes to hiring local jobs, access, and even a small step to try to help our environment. Then there's the Cohen testimony, right? Just kind of thrown in the middle and nothing really new was revealed per se or shocking but felt like a reminder of what has been and what is broken and corrupt about this administration and certain aspects of our country. And then just yesterday, two police officers in Sacramento, California got away with murder yet again in the killing of Stefan Clark. It's felt like a heavy week to me. But what about you? What event or experience or piece of news or moment has made it perhaps a heavy week for you? We went to the English Coalition for Nonviolent Journal luncheon on Thursday. Didn't make it to the vigil. But, you know, it's gnarly. 
and to hear at that luncheon that in the state of North Carolina, um, dealers of guns do not have, you don't have to report stolen or um, lost guns in this state. <laughs> and so to hear how some dealers will buy, say, 2,000 guns, sell 500 legally, and then sell 1,500, not as kosher, like, illegally, but they don't have to report them. And just, then even the, the 17 yeah. disparities between deal, gun, gun vendors and the people who are purchasing crimes and Yeah. It was a sobering luncheon. Yeah. Others. What about this week has felt heavy to you or made it heavy? Yeah. I work at a Methodist church, and I feel gross getting my paycheck there now. Yeah. And it's really hard. And I feel stupid as a heterosexual cisgender cisgender woman, being like, I'm so mad and I'm so sad, but I, I feel like that's selfish because as a minority, when white people are like, oh, I'm so mad for you, I'm like, shut up. You know what I mean? Just like, honestly. Yeah. It bothers me, and now I'm, I'm doing it anyway, and I'm sitting here like, I'm sad about my job and my paycheck. And, but, you know, and I have, like, my best friend here, who grew up a Methodist, is texting me so depressed that I know he's feeling suicidal. Yeah. Because he is a gay man that is being rejected by his home. Yeah. And it's just, it's hard. It's so hard and heartbreaking. And unjust. Yeah. Thanks. And I think it's weeks like these where we wonder to ourselves, is anything going to change? Right? Is anything really going to change? Is the arc of the moral universe really bending toward justice and love? at all. And that question keeps me up really late at night. And those in Jesus' day, his disciples, his followers, those that were intrigued or captivated by him, were probably wondering some of the same things too. Is anything going to change? Is the arc of the moral universe really bending toward justice and love at all? I mean, right before today's text, we were dealing with disciples and Jesus casting out demons, healing broken bodies, curing diseases, and dealing with the oppressive system of the Roman Empire that just wouldn't go away and kept creeping in and creeping in and creeping in. They too, and maybe even Jesus, were wondering, is anything going to change? And then we have a mountain. Would someone read today's text for us. 
Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing it, he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my children. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent, and in those days told no one of any of the things that they had seen. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a great crowd met them. Thanks so much, Sarah. Now, Luke's account of the Transfiguration, unlike some of the other Gospels, is one of the most elusive and evocative scenes. Um, and interpreters are far from a consensus to its historical roots, all right? Does the Transfiguration report a mysterious event or a vision during Jesus' ministry? Is it a post-resurrection appearance that the Gospel writer of Luke inserted into this point in the narrative? Is it a tale arising from the Hellenistic mystery tradition? Or is it entirely the creation of the early church to affirm the church's confession of Jesus as the exalted Lord? Luke's telling is similar to Mark's, but takes some liberties. And the writer of Luke gives us prayer, which Mark does not. Jesus dazzling white. Moses and Elijah showing up, Peter being eager to stay there, because Peter, quite frankly, is pretty eager, and then another voice from the cloud, also known as God, and then the disciples staying completely silent about the entire thing. In the words of Frederick Buechner, it is as strange a scene as there is in the Gospels. Even without the voice from the cloud to explain it, the disciples had no doubt what they were witnessing. It was Jesus of Nazareth, all right, the man they'd tramped many a dusty mile with, whose mother and brothers they knew, the one they'd seen as hungry, tired, footsores as the rest of them. But it was also the Messiah, the transfigured Christ in his glory, it was the holiness of the man shining through his humanness, his face so afire with it, they were almost blinded. But why do we have this really odd story in the gospel that those of us gathered are captivated by when we aren't really sure <laughs> Of, of its roots, right? Why did the gospel writer 
why did Jesus, why did historians find it important for the transfiguration to be a piece of our narrative? Why do you think we have the transfiguration in the gospel? Really, there are no wrong answers because this has been a hotly debated topic for forever. But why do you think we maybe have this narrative? And right smack dab in the middle of the gospel. Well, it's something to establish authority. It's something to establish authority. before this, right? You have Peter too, of Jesus asking Peter, who do you say that I am? Right? The Messiah. And so sort of a step, continuing to establish authority of Christ as Messiah. Why else do you think we might have this transfiguration account? It just kind of cements Jesus as part of the Trinity. Yeah. And cements the, the deity of Jesus. Yeah. Um, especially right before he turns to Jerusalem yeah. um, and starts walking towards his death. Yeah, right? Because the next mountain after the transfiguration is Golgotha, right? Golgotha, you know? So, so cementing Christ's deity before Christ walks toward his death. Do you all find the transfiguration account important? Like to your faith or your understanding or growing up, like, or even now? Like, has this been an important text for you? It's okay if the answer's no. It's totally acceptable. Yeah, not so much. Not so much, yeah. Kind of like one you remember hearing about in Sunday school and be like, whoa, that was weird. Like, checks a box, but... Yeah, checks the box. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> I've always felt like I didn't really understand the real meaning of it, but what was interesting, what is interesting to me about it is that the people who are the closest to Jesus don't get it, and they're like, let's do this thing. Um, and it makes me feel like, oh, okay, when I don't get it, it's not as big of a deal as I think it is. Yeah, yeah, the disciples don't get it, right? They're like, let's just stay up here on this mountain. And Jesus is like, no, that's kind of missing the point. But it is, yeah. The disciples don't get it. It's okay if we don't, too. Others? I would say not necessarily the text, because I honestly was reading it like, I don't, I don't remember this. Like, <laughs> like the symbolism. Yeah. Like this idea of like the glory of God being on you. Yeah. It was like a really big deal. Yeah. Um, growing up. Yeah. 
so this idea of authority and deity, you know, all of those ideas is very perfect in like mm-hmm. every church. Yeah. Like, do you have the glory? Yeah. Yeah, which is synonymous with anointing. Hmm. So glory being synonymous with anointing, which really is synonymous probably, right, with like establishing power and like who's, yeah, closer to God or holier, right, kind of entering this holier, holiest of holies. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Escape. Something I appreciated about it is this is a mystical experience. Yeah. I think I appreciate the characters being like, let's stay here forever. Um, yeah. And then I just have to go down that. Mm-hmm. And that just feels like life so much. Yeah, right? <laughs> and then you have to live down there. Yeah. It's like, you don't get to live yeah. in this mystical, right, experience. That's like, no, no, okay, we're coming back down. Yeah. It does feel very real to life. Yeah. Any other last thoughts on this is it may be entirely contrived, but like, this hasn't been a particularly important text to me in my spiritual life. When I look at it, there's the, the symbolism is what really resonates with me because we, we also see God coming in a cloud when Moses goes yeah. up to receive the Ten Commandments, right? Yeah. And if you sit on a mountain and there are no clouds, it's one of like the most beautiful, just like open fields of vision you can have. You can see so well. But when clouds come on and on mountaintop, you can see almost nothing. And it's just really striking that this, like, the times that humanity comes the closest to, like, actually interacting with God are in these times of just, like, being completely obscure from everything around you. And, and as the disciples react, like, these times of kind of fear, too, right? But there's, I don't know, there's something to me about this dichotomy of being able to see really well and no vision at all. Thanks for that, Caleb. Being able to see really well, right, in theory from mountains, and yet when the cloud comes, vision being obscured and shifted. So, um, transfiguration is hotly debated. There's um, a lot of scholars who say the transfiguration is the hardest text to preach. I don't think that I buy that, um, but, but it is hotly debated. But there is a pretty strong line of thought um, amongst many scholars, theologians, and theologians that the gospel writers in particular, with this account, want it to be known that Jesus gives his disciples this mountaintop mystical transfiguration experience to strengthen them for the struggles that are and the struggles that would be ahead, i.e. Jesus walking toward the cross. The disciples needed to bear witness to God's glory, to the divinity of Christ on the mountain, according to some, for two things. To be reminded and remember that the work was and is forever a part of them, but also greater than them, right? (coughs) Calling back not only Jesus, but Elijah and Moses. 
and that the same God illumined on that mountain who calls together God's beloved and calls forth Christ and calls forth disciples has been and will be with them and with those who are hearing the story of the gospel down the mountain too. And I think that that is true and makes a lot of sense. But for me, whenever I think about the transfiguration and why we might have this account, or do I find the transfiguration important? If I'm being honest, I get a bit uncomfortable. And maybe some of you are in that boat too. Because I'm not totally sure I want to be captivated by, believing in, or even follow up or down a mountain, a God of such glory, majesty, and power that then is really easily manipulated by so many. This morning, my beloved mentor, um, Amy Butler, preached at Duke Chapel. That's why I'm wearing a skirt, not for y'all, but for Duke Chapel. Um, that on Transfiguration Sunday, we often want to make the transfigured Christ into our own image. Beautiful, gilded, high, and lifted up. And while I think she was pushing those in Duke Chapel in a beautiful, gilded cathedral with Jesus high and lifted up, to see Jesus as more than all glory and more than just a shiny, easy-to-consume God, I think if we're being honest, for many of us gathered here, it's really, really hard to see or believe in a God of glory, to not look at a gilded, holier-than-holy God filled with saving possibilities, even the ability to ever save us high on that mountain, and to think that it might be real. And understandably so, right? God's glory has been used and abused through the years to say who's in, who's got the glory and who doesn't, who's in and who's out. Mystical experiences on mountaintops and prayer have often come close to emotional and spiritual abuse. And the inability to see or feel God's glory in whatever context you were raised in or come from often meant that something was wrong with you and there was deep shame associated. God's glory has been used to keep systems of oppression in place and institutions comfortable, both on and off the mountain. And so I often have a tendency to want to distance myself from this transfigured Christ. 
because it just makes me a little uncomfortable. But maybe I'm alone in that. Why do you think the glory of God is complicated or not? Or, put another way, why or how does the transfigured Christ, the deity of God and all of God's glory, cause some friction for you? Or does it? when you think glory of God, you still have flashbacks to, I was like, yeah, born this horrible sinful creature from, you know, and wrestling with that. Yeah, Susan. I think you said it well, but I was kind of thinking, but I think for me, it's like I get, I don't really have an understanding of what glory is and what glorified God would mean. It's clearly not separate, but it's not beautiful and it's not gold I feel like lots of my uncomfortableness with the glory of God is not uncomfortable with God, God's self, but how we've talked, right? Like how we've talked about being high and lifted up this gold thing, these things that get so abstract from love and justice here on earth. Yeah, that is not how you glorify God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in a lot of situations. Yeah. Time and place, and yet, um, like you said, all the things. 
brings out um, God's availability and hiddenness to me. Mm-hmm. That, like, in light of pain and suffering, it's just um, heightened. And that, in many ways, right, we are given really all are, it could be argued that all we are given are memories of an account of God revealing God's self, right? And what are we to do with that? Yeah, Marie? I think we hear all of our words um, make a lot of sense with this passage. Um, and of course, you know, the, the danger there is like, well, what's, what's, the, um, what's the action? You know, that gets manipulated. And I'm not sure anything is the final say on that. Um, but uh, I don't historically have like a bad relationship with this passage. So it's, uh, I guess I do come to it like, Have an experience, your excuse for like being an apathetic human that goes away. Like, yeah. Be ignited or be gone. Yeah. 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 And I think in um, Mary Oliver's poem, so I was rereading that at the beginning of the week and thinking about this text and thinking about my own uncomfortability with the language of glory, how the church has used language of glory, how it has been abused, thinking in frustration, which is the heaviness and the weight of the world, um, and what to do about it, and how I was thinking that as I kept on reading this text and I was going up the mountain, right, and like, praying about it and thinking about it and reading commentaries and just that I couldn't stop hearing the groans of this world, right? And just then I would start feeling the weight of the world and wondering again, right? Is anything going to change? Is the arc of the moral universe ever bending toward justice? And I think think it was, I have this moment of reading the text and looking at the transfigured Christ and seeing how in my wanting to distance myself and say, that was for the disciples, that was for the early church, that wasn't for me, that isn't for me, that's not going to stop the groans in this world. that I was really choosing to not be ignited, to use Oliver's poem, but just to kind of be gone and be like, well, okay. And I thought back to Jairus, what you were saying about the disciples of how human they were, right? And in the midst of it, they aren't getting it. They're frustrated. They're wanting to stay up on this mountain. And then you have God just proclaiming, stop it. Just listen. Just listen and see and watch what's happening. Just listen. 
And it really pushed me, and I kind of am wanting to push us, that what were to happen if we were to suspend our judgment, suspend our like, we don't really know what to do about glory, to suspend our skepticism and our fear and our hurt in some ways that God, right? It's like, where is our dazzling white Jesus, you know? in the here and now, but to look at both the mountaintop and the world down the mountain and be open to seeing the transfigured Christ in all Christ's complexity and be open to a faith in this transfigured Christ that was and is not a settled belief, but living process as the very edge and opening of life and process. And take a cue from Mary Oliver's poem and her wisdom. That so why should I not sit every morning of my life on the hillside looking into the shining world? Because properly attended to, delight as well as havoc is suggestion. Can one be passionate about the just, the ideal, the sublime, and the holy, and yet commit to no labor in its cause? I don't think so. All summations have a beginning, all effect has a story, all kindness begins with the sown seed, thought buds toward radiance. The gospel of light is the crossroads of indolence or action. Be ignited or be gone. Be ignited or be gone. Peter, James, and John had a choice on that mountain. Would they take the transfigured Christ, a picture of what was to come, God's glory, God's power, God's love ruling the day and use it to ignite their lives down the mountain? Or would they let it pass them by when all that remains is the ordinary, the mundane, and the pain of this world? And granted, they were ignited, they did choose to be ignited, but they didn't speak about it. So it's not like we're like having to become a bonfire here, right? And as much as I'd like to capture that moment, right? They wanna stay on that mountain. And yes, they did have Jesus transfigured before them, but after that moment, all they have is memory and story, just like us. A memory of a loving God that is with them as they move forward in their pursuit of God's kingdom, having to trust that memory, the hope in a transfigured Christ that what was could be. And we, I think, like the disciples, are working off of memories of moments. 
memories of moments where God's glory in all its complexity in the transfigured Christ is somehow revealed. There are moments in our lives, I think, when everything seems so clear, when it seems obvious that God is with us and that love conquers hate and joy will have the final word, when our, or perhaps at least my, analytical mind, our minds are suspended for just a moment by a catch in the throat an embodied experience that only can be ascribed to as God. But these moments are fleeting, and too often the deep pain of the world seeps in. And yet somehow, these transfiguration moments, these moments of God's revealing glory are meant to buoy us and give us strength for the work and life ahead. Yes, even with all the greatest complexity we may throw at it, and with our deepest skepticism woven in, and the groans of the world being ever-present too. On Thursday, um, I attended Religious Coalition for Nonviolent Durham's annual vigil to remember 34 people that were killed due to violence in Durham in 2018. 34 names were read. 34 beloved lives were lost. And as every name was read and remembered in that space, the families would stand up. And then after those who had lost a loved one due to gun violence in 2018 had their loved one's names spoken, anyone who had lost someone due to gun violence in Durham was allowed to come to the front and speak their beloved's name out loud. And you would think that despair within the memory ruled the night that this was not a transfiguring moment. But the most surprising, sobering thing happened. There was despair, yes. But there was an illuminating hope that these memories, just having someone call their beloved's name and remember ignited a hope for shalom peace, a hope for systems of injustice and gun violence to finally break, and a hope over and over and over again that a God that was with Christ and the disciples on the mountain and with Moses on the mountain at Mount Sinai was with them ever still at the very bottom. It was a hope bubbling up that by the end of the night, the entire community was singing, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. 
this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine again and again and again. Remembering collectively the moments of the goodness and the love of God buoyed those gathered for the deep work of grief and justice and the groans of pain ahead. It's still been a really heavy week. And the looming question, is anything going to change? Is the arc of the moral universe really bending toward justice at all? Still persist. It still keeps many of us, if not all of us, awake. But in the middle of my questioning skeptic spirit, and maybe yours too, I hear Mary Oliver's words, be ignited or be gone. And I hear the people singing at Shepherd's House UMC, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. In the murk of all that is mundane and ordinary, all that is unjust and painful, all that is beyond comprehension, we are given into that, this mountain, this transfigured Christ. God's glory. And the thing is, we kind of have to respond to it. Are we gonna push it away? Which we can. Are we gonna wholeheartedly accept it? Which we could. Doubtful that that's probably what's gonna happen, but maybe. Are we maybe gonna be like the disciples? Not totally knowing what to do, maybe being silent for a little bit, but thinking, I can't handle the groans of the world and the despair of the world alone. I need to be ignited by the transfigured Christ for this work, to be reminded that the God who drew near to them then, draws near to us now. If only we would have the vision to see beyond the turmoil of our world, be ignited with even the littlest of light, not let our, not let my skepticism of a glorified God hold us captive and be open to see Jesus. Yes, to even see Jesus in all his glory here and now. That's what we're given to walk toward Golgotha with over these next 40 days. What might happen if we try to be ignited by it.
Jeff and Band.
tonight uh, for how many of us this story was formative and I think the general consensus was that not too many people said this was a big story for me Um, but you know when I think about what's a what's a big part of the story for me it's often thinking about these disciples who are awful often bumbling and don't get it, and yet somehow we're ignited, and, um, and you know, we're many, many, many years down the line standing on the shoulders of the fact that they, um, they did and endured. 
Um, and so, uh, while this text, I, I wouldn't consider it for me a very formative text in my story, um, I bet this experience was formative for them, right? Um, to have this mystical mountaintop experience must have been um, powerful. And I look here and it says they were weighed down with sleep, but since they stayed awake, they saw his glory. And, um, you know, when I was reading this, I was looking for what, what did they do right? <laughs> you know, what, what can we learn? And they, they showed up and they stayed awake. And it makes me think about um, how can we stay awake? How can we stay alert? How can we pay attention um, so that we can see the glory of God? And um, how can that inform our lives when we're not on the mountain? And so um, we've got this encounter, this sacred encounter, and... um, I'm thinking about the sacred encounter that we participate in every week um, at the table. And I would just encourage us tonight to either remember a time when we feel, when we have felt the power or the glory of God, or think about how can I be alert and stay awake and how, what are practices that I can engage in to remember um, sacred encounters? And how can that help me do and endure? Um, so I invite you to the table. Each week we um, take part in an interactive a table, an open table where everyone is welcome. We serve each other. You break the bread or the gluten-free cracker and hand it to the person beside you and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the love of Christ given for you. And you pour wine or pour juice and you hand it to that person and you say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And um, I, I hope that we can take part in this sacred encounter and stay awake um, for others.